welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. This is Zachary Shahan, Director, CEO of Clean Technica, with another episode of Clean Tech Talk, our podcast series. And we're talking with Mark Z. Jacobson again, one of our favorite people in the world, to be honest. We, we, we lean on Mark a lot for his expertise in renewable energy. Uh, he's a top scientist on renewable energy and overall energy matters at Stanford. Uh, also helped launch, uh, co-founded the Solutions Project, which, which works very hard on messaging about, around renewable energy and clean tech. Uh, so today we're talking about green hydrogen because it's been a very hot topic this year in 2020, and there's a lot of PR about it. There's a lot of government programs related to it, and there's a lot of concern that there's more BS and hype than reality behind it. So, Mark, to start off, can you just give us an overview of where you think hydrogen is particularly useful or not useful today and in the in the future um yes thanks zach for having me on this uh, show again and yeah i'm happy to talk about this so hydrogen in my mind its main benefit is for long distance heavy transport and of course that's only if it's produced from clean renewable energy namely wind well electricity where the electricity is provided from wind or solar or hydro or some other clean renewable energy, uh, not from steam reforming of natural gas. Um, there will there will be one tiny exception to that, which is when you have a landfill, when you have waste landfill methane or digester methane that would otherwise float to the air, that could be used uh, in steam reforming to produce hydrogen uh, for a fuel cell in heavy duty transport, but that's the only natural gas, not conventional natural gas. Uh, we only want it to be produced from clean renewable energy, electricity. And the use of a hydrogen would only be used in a fuel cell, so not burned, not combusted for anything. And the most fuel cells would be in heavy duty, long distance transport. Now we all know that for light duty vehicles, it's much more efficient to have a battery electric vehicle. You need, for example, for a conventional light duty car, uh, it, would take, it would take about three times the number of wind turbines to produce the hydrogen to run that car than if you take the same electricity from the wind 
just to put it in a battery to run the car. So hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, they take three times more energy than just battery electric vehicles for light duty, heavy, sorry, light duty transport. Um, although having said that though, even a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle is more efficient than an internal combustion engine vehicle, uh, even ignoring the pollution, it's still more efficient. Um, but having said that again, so hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, are, it's, mo it's mostly beneficial for heavy duty, uh, long distance transport. So it turns out that yeah, as you get bigger and bigger vehicles and you need more and more batteries, just carrying around the batteries takes up a lot more weight. And there is a crossing point, there's a crossover point in terms of weight of the vehicle and distance that the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle actually becomes more efficient than the battery electric vehicle. Now for, you know, with current or near future technologies for like semi trucks, for example, that uh, crossover point might be like 1200 kilometers, 1200 kilometers. Uh, for aircraft, the crossover point, it's really short haul flights versus long haul flights. So 1500 kilometers and less. Just going back real quick to the semi truck, you mean of range? Uh, yeah, in terms of range, range of, of like a, of a semi truck, like a, anything under, let's say a thousand kilometers can be electric. Um, and, you know, ignoring battery swapping for the time being. Uh, but for long haul, you know, say 1200 kilometers and, and longer than hydrogen fuel cell and based on current technology. Now for aircraft, it's about 1500 kilometers below that we want electric, uh, longer than that we'd want hydrogen fuel cell. And, and you're, and you're speaking now or in theory, like, uh, well, right now there are both electric and hydrogen fuel cell planes that are shorter than up to 1500 kilometers. There is a hydrogen fuel cell four seater that goes 1500 kilometers. There, there are several electric planes that go 500 to 1,000 kilometers. They're all small. There's like few. I think the largest is like nine-seater electric plane that goes yeah. several hundred kilometers. Yeah, we, we cover all of them, and everyone is a record. It's like every time there's an electric plane, it's like a record <laughs> because it's like some different niche uh, application, some specific kind of plane. You know, it's, it's just such an early stage. So it's like it's sort of like, didn't we already have a record on? It's like, oh, it was this, this kind of plane, not this kind of plane. Yeah, yeah, records are set almost daily or weekly. Um, but there is, I mean, Bo uh, not Boeing, Airbus is actually designing hydrogen fuel cell long distance heavy transport. So we did an analysis. I just had a PhD student, um, Dr. Scott Katalinich. Uh, he he um, did his PhD thesis on looking at transitioning the entire military, but, well, mostly the army, but military, all military vehicles to either electric or hydrogen fuel cells. So we looked at um, tanks, armored vehicles, helicopters, um, uh, ships, and also long distance aircraft. We did look at 747s in there as well. And the conclusion was that it's technically based on published technologies that not, not, not commercialized necessarily, not commercialized yet, but published technologies for hydrogen that it is possible to, if we look at, we are trying to constrain it in terms of having, we're constraining the mass, well, looking at mass, volume, thrust, and distance. And, and so for like a long distance heavy 747, it turns out that you pretty much can, you can have the same thrust to weight ratio and uh, it'll be a little bit larger plane, uh, but, to, and you can have the same range uh, but 
with a hydrogen fuel cell, it's much more difficult with batteries. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not even, I don't think it was even feasible based on known technology with batteries for a 747, but it was with hydrogen fuel cell. When we get to smaller planes, you know, both hydrogen and batteries were possible. But in fact, we found it was for all vehicles, you could do it. Um, for all heavy vehicles, you could do it with hydrogen. Um, and then certain segment of those you could do it with electric. But the good news is it's possible. Now that means that we don't want and we don't need biofuel vehicles, the biofuel aircraft, where they just substitute jet fuel for um, with some bio, biofuel or with some reformulated fuel where they, you know, synthetic fuel, for example. Because in my mind, we want to not only eliminate carbon emissions, but we want to eliminate air pollution emissions. In the case of aircraft, if we go to hydrogen and electric vehicles, electric aircraft, I mean, we not only eliminate the combustion pollution, uh, but we eliminate contrails as well. Well, with electric aircraft, you eliminate 100% of contrails. With hydrogen fuel cell, you eliminate 90% because there's still water vapor emissions and that contributes to the contrail formation a little bit. Right. Well, yeah, the direct water vapor. So uh, we would eliminate air pollution and contrails pretty much uh, if we go to either hydrogen fuel cell or electric aircraft. And for certainly on the ground for long distance trucks, we're replacing uh, jet, we're replacing diesel. And for ships, long distance heavy ships, we're replacing bunker fuel, which is the dirtiest type of fuel in the world. So from an air pollution health point of view, we are really benefiting um, with both electric and hydrogen fuel cell. And there are 7 million people who die from air pollution each year worldwide. And so we want to, that's a, a primary goal in addition to eliminating carbon. Uh, so, you know, so the, in terms of other uses of hydrogen. So, um, but just to, to wrap up then on, on the vehicles, um, basically in the next 10 to 15 years, you would choose hydrogen fuel cell for, um, I don't know if you want to give a specific breaking point on planes, but sort of larger planes. Yeah, long haul uh, flights, which is like 1500 kilometers and longer. But and just to put it in perspective, worldwide of all the aircraft flights, commercial aircraft flights worldwide, there are about 30 to 33 million flights per year. Short haul flights make up about 55 to percent of all fuel use, and the long haul flights are around 45 percent. Yeah, I recall in Europe, um, you know, Ryanair is very popular, and I recall seeing it was like the number one airline in terms of uh, flights, or I think in terms of uh, miles flown every year, which is, and it just, you know, it just focuses on regional flights. So um, that's, that sort of echoes what you just said. So, so large plane ships of uh, marine shipping of, of all kinds of. Well, yeah. So it'd be similar for ships and boats and ferries. Well, ferries will be all electric or, um, or that's most efficient boats, speed boats, say electric. But long distance, heavy, you know, cruise ships and things like that, and tankers. If we hopefully don't, don't need tankers for much anymore, but um, you know, anything heavy and long distance would be hydrogen fuel cell. I mean, you can imagine, you know, some people propose like putting, you know, wind farms in the middle of the ocean, and then you can stop and charge your boat with just pure electric. That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they have floating wind tur turbines now, so yeah. that's a possibility. Um, so I don't want to say you can't have an all-electric uh, shipping fleet, but 
I think it, you know, for practical purposes, having heavy long distance heavy ships being hydrogen is gonna uh, that's gonna win out in the end. And then and then large semi trucks. Um, I mean, semi trucks for twelve hundred mile, twelve hundred kilometers and up um, at the moment. It looks like yeah, at the moment. I mean, that could change if you have battery swapping and um, really fast charging. You know, even faster charging. Um, so I don't I don't want to you know, draw a firm conclusion on that. But as of today, I would say long distance heavy uh, trucks would be hydrogen fuel cell. Yeah, so that's vehicles. And then, um, yeah, so what other applications do you see? And and just to clarify, you said the other applications you would, I mean, you're, you were only talking about green hydrogen, right? Uh, re- hydrogen yes. produced from renewables, right? Right. Yeah. So the other applications, so some people talk about using hydrogen for electricity production. Now that's not a very efficient use of hydrogen because let's say, as opposed to using it, just storing it in a battery, because if you take wind energy to produce electricity and you store it in a battery and then, uh, then you discharge the battery, you know, there's a a few percent loss. Let's put it up to 10% loss or 15 even percent loss of, uh, energy doing that. But when you use electricity from winds to electrolyze hydrogen, there's a loss there to during that process, then you um, compress the hydrogen. Usually there's a loss there, then using it in the fuel cell, there's a loss there. And so you end up having a lot more losses to reproduce electricity than just storing it in a battery. So that's not the most efficient use. Now, if you just happen to have this excess hydrogen around, and it does work. So I'm not saying it's, you can't use it at a higher cost, but I'd say like, if you're to target, we want to target first this heavy duty long distance transport. Now there are some applications for electricity, like microgrids. So remote microgrids. Well, the other the one advantage of using hydrogen is it does produce heat when you're like the electrolyzer, you do produce heat. And so you can, in fact, there is a microgrid where it's, uh, the electricity and the heat both come from hydrogen fuel cells. And so hydrogen is stored. The nice thing, if you're in a remote Arctic microgrid, for example, and you do have wind, but um, it might not, you know, maybe your wind turbine's frozen or something like that. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, you do, if if it's intermittent in terms of the production, it's nice to use intermittent energy such as wind or solar to produce hydrogen. Then you can store it in a tank and then you can use that hydrogen whenever you need it. And you can use it for both electricity and heat. So there, are, there is an example microgrid up with uh, hydrogen fuel cells. And I thought that was actually a good idea. Now, there are mo- a lot of microgrids, you don't need that. You, they actually work sustainably with just solar and wind. But, you know, depending on the latitude and the location. Uh, but there are cases, I think, where you can use hydrogen, and that would be an f- relatively efficient compared to other options. Another application is in industry, like steel production. Right now, I mean, steel produces a lot of carbon dioxide, air pollution, and... A lot of the energy, a lot of the carbon dioxide and air pollution is due to the uh, just combustion of fuels for electricity or heat uh, for the steel production process. But there's also this chemical release of CO2. It turns out there's a way to produce CO2 using hydrogen. And if you use renewable electricity plus the hydrogen, it actually, I think it reduces like 99.5% or something like that of the of all the emissions. And so that would be an application that I favor because it reduces air pollution and carbon emissions. And so that, yeah, so there are some industrial processes that hydrogen is useful for. 
yeah, I know you know Mike Bernard well, um, and he he may follow up with another discussion about this with you. But he's he's um, yeah, very critical when we publish anything on hydrogen that sort of falls outside of the sensible application uh, boundary. <laughs> but he's very pro uh, use of hydrogen for for certain applications, like we're talking about, and specifically um, like you're talking about steel production and some industrial uses. Sees it as a very as a top option. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good option. But in terms of um, what it's not good for, I mean, I was looking at you know the idea of like putting hydrogen in pipe in natural gas pipes yeah. and just using it as an substitute for natural gas. Uh, and we ha- we had a long piece on this topic. I guess it's become. It's, I'm not sure if I follow, but has this become a popular idea in the UK and Europe? Because the the contributor. Um, was focusing on the, the the UK market, I believe, and um, it seemed like he was framing it like this has become a very popular option. He detailed why it's this like a stupid option, why it's not going to happen. It's just, and so the best it is, it's like kind of a pipe dream. But uh, yeah, what, what, what well, do you, I what think you I say? think it's not only yeah, it's in Europe. It's pretty popular. I think even Southern Cal Edison or Southern Cal Gas, I think, has been researching and pushing this idea as well. Um, to try to keep their business model going, um, because you know in California, California has a law to go to 100% renewable electricity by 2045. So that would you know Southern Cal Gas split from Southern Cal Edison. Southern Cal Edison creates electricity. Southern Cal Gas is a natural gas component. So basically, the, you know they're going to go out of business in terms of electricity production. And then California is also thinking of eliminating uh, natural gas appliances and buildings. I mean they're already th- I think. 39 city laws to ban natural gas and new construction going to homes and buildings. Um, but the state, I think there's going to be a statewide push to eliminate natural gas appliances and buildings. So I think that means Southern Cal Edison is basically going to disappear unless they change their business model. And so I think they're pushing hi- hydrogen as the alternative. Um, I mean, just a, there's a couple of fundamental things. One is, you know, hydrogen is a really small molecule. It's, so we've got a molecular weight of two, H2, compared to methane, which is the main component of natural gas, has a molecular weight of 16. So 16 is uh, bigger than two, right? I'm not yeah, so yeah. it's 18 <laughs> times bigger. So the, the methane molecule is in the order of eight times bigger than a hydrogen molecule. So there's right, right now there's like a, on average, like a 1% leakage rate of methane in the system. And, and if you go to, there've been drive arounds, like in Boston, there's a study where yeah. people drove around the city looking at methane levels and you, and there are just thousands upon thousands of leaks and pipes. You know, just everybody's home has methane or has natural gas pipes and these pipes leak. They just leak all over the place and you can just see them. You can see methane levels spiking around buildings and this all comes from leakage. So methane leakage rate just from the piping distribution system is already huge. You can imagine putting a hydrogen molecule in there instead instead of methane, and leakage rate is going to go up like a factor of eight or more because it's just a, it can get through smaller holes. Or yeah, hydrogen. And so this is a, one problem that most people don't realize. And also, hydrogen is more corrosive, I, I believe. From you know, I don't know much more about that, but it's just that's another potential issue. But then. You know, we're, why do we, if for new buildings, why do we want two forms of energy going into your building? There's, I have a fully electric home. I have no gas on my property. 
I mean, it's amazing. It works perfectly fine. I don't, do not need gas for anything. There's no purpose of having gas in my home. I have an induction yeah. stove. I'm from Florida. So when I grew up and realized people had gas in their homes and stuff, it was like a, an interesting uh, revelation and sort of confusing. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely... Uh, the Electrify Everything movement is big. Well, this article by Paul Martin, who is chemical process development expert, um, the, the article is titled, Is Hydrogen the Best Option to Replace Natural Gas in the Home? Looking at the numbers, um, he pointed out what you pointed out. He also said, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to re, you'd have to have a whole different piping system. So the idea is, oh, we have a piping system that we can use, uh, and that's that would make it convenient, uh, but actually you wouldn't be able to use the same system because of all these problems of corrosiveness and, le and leakage and all this stuff. So it's like the the theoretical benefit is not even doesn't even exist, right? So yeah, well, I don't know. It's a yeah. There's a, there's structural problems I think that are much more difficult than people contemplate. But then yeah, what do you do with the hydrogen? Are you just burning it in your water heater? And you're not gonna. I mean. Yeah. So, so I know we're, we're focusing on the numbers and the science, but I'm curious of your take on this because you're so well-informed and active on it. Um, do you, th I mean, do you think it's a real hope that some of these, like, like you mentioned SoCal, um, a real hope that they have to sustain their, their current business, but switch to, to green hydrogen? Or do you think it's a, a kind of uh, smoke and mirrors like trick to say, hey, yeah, let's do this. And then in 10 years, when it, when we find out it's not practical, well, at least we have natural gas to fill in. Uh, like, like it sort of keeps their business going. It's sort of kind of cynical play to keep their business going with a false hope. What well, I think they're really pushing it. I think they're actually trying to push legislation to support yeah. it. Yeah, so well, because there's because there's big legislative pushes. And, and I mean, then in, in 10 years, if it's not working, the fallback is to just use natural gas. Say, oh, well, we've, we've messed up. We'll just have to use natural gas for now, right? So, I mean, do you think that's intentional? Do you think that's... Well, I think they, you know, they, they want to use as much of their current infrastructure that would save them money. They want a market, a new market. Uh, they want an excuse to kind of keep the infrastructure in place to extend the use of the gas. So I think it's all of the above. I mean, if you can extend your infrastructure use and say, look, this will be a lost asset unless we use it for, um, you, you can convince some people, maybe legislators. Uh, so I think it's- And I guess, I mean, not everyone at the executive levels understands the science of it either. They might think, oh yeah, this is a great yeah. idea for our business, but they- <laughs> Well, I think, I think yeah, a lot of this is run by business people who are, you know, they see an economic benefit of it and they don't understand the environmental implications of what they're talking about. Right. This is especially, and in Europe, this is going on as well because there's a big, I think, even bigger push for piping hydrogen around. Yeah, Europe. I'm. I mean, I'm mostly focused on Europe when I'm thinking about this. I mean, you, you mentioned Southern California, but there, yeah, I didn't realize, but there is a very, very, there's a lot of money going into lobbying for this in Europe. So, yeah, right, because there is money to be made, and that you know, so if. You know, if people want to do things on financial grounds, that's one thing, but then to try to claim there's a climate or pollution benefit, that's a different thing. So, you know, this, this we've, I've just been dealing with this for decades, 30, 32 yeah. years. <laughs> and, you know, I see the, uh, you know, the ethanol people pushing ethanol as a, you know, green climate saving uh, fuel. 
and reducing air pollution when in fact it hardly reduces any carbon if sometimes it increases the carbon and it definitely increases air pollution in comparison in like throughout the US on average, for example, in comparison to gasoline even. So it's not green or clean at all, not even withstanding the land use, but that's touted because you know they want to make money on this. Some people want to make money. So they just, they greenwash it and claim something clean and green. And if they're just honest about it and we want to help farmers and have yeah. given more money in their pocket, you know, I respect that a little more than trying to claim that it's benefiting the climate. So there's the same thing with, you know, pushing all, all these other technologies. It's the same thing with carbon capture and storage, direct air capture. They're scam technologies. They don't work. And they actually increase air pollution because they require more energy. That means you're burning more fuel to create that energy to run the capture equipment. All the capture equipment does is take out carbon. That's all. It doesn't, whereas if you took that same, let's say it's even from renewable energy, you know, wind energy producing electricity for carbon capture equipment, all that does is take out carbon. Whereas if you took that wind energy and you replace a coal plant or a natural gas plant, you not only reduce the carbon, but you eliminate the air pollution, you eliminate the upstream mining of the fuel and the pollution associated with that and the carbon associated with that has a multiple times effect of benefits of, of using clean electricity to eliminate fossil fuels rather than to try to pull carbon out of the air or out of a coal plant. Yeah. So, well, so green, green hydrogen, uh, you're saying not, not a good idea for home energy, uh, for home heating or appliances. Um, one other. Well, let me just say one more thing about that. If I, if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Because it's important to say, well, what can we do for homes? And we want to electrify homes. So we want to use heat pumps that run on electricity. They use one fourth. The energy as natural gas heaters or even electric resistance heaters. And we want to use those for air heating, air cooling, and water heating. We want to use LED lights, electric induction cooktop stoves, uh, electric cars, and uh, batteries to store having ideally solar on your roof and storing excess electricity and batteries. And electric, even heat pump dryers now, they're available. They use much less energy than electric resistance dryers. And also just all... You know, washing machines, of course, and everything should be electric. And but it's possible, and it's not doesn't cost any more, and you save money. I mean, in my case, it's the payback time is five years with subsidies and ten years without. But solar is warranted for twenty five years, so it's a it's a no brainer. Yeah, so many of these are, are are great technologies that really people are not much aware. We we built sort of two new apartments in Poland before we moved here. Um, so you know you got you buy the apartment, but it's concrete. You have to fill it fill it all in, and uh, the hot thing right now there was induction stoves, and um, you know they're, they're heavily his heavy history of gas cooking, but uh, you know just it's the technology is there, and and I'm not sure if it's driven much by regulation or just the technology has arrived, but we got it in both homes, and it's just so much better. It's like the, the cooking experience with induction is like so good. And we've we've written art, we've had articles published on it. We have a, a, a professional chef who's just like, this is the way to go. Like, stop the the kind of mythical the, mythical you know stories about gas cooking being like phenomenal. It doesn't compare to induction cooking, induction stove cooking. So it's like people have to realize it's not the old school electric stoves that suck that we have here in Florida. They're really not good. 
but it's a whole different generation of cooking that's really high high quality and super efficient. And um, I mean, it's really hard to use anything else after using induction stoves. Yeah, I know. But that's just a tangent. <laughs> yeah, most people think of electric as electric resistance stoves, which really do suck. But yeah, yeah. that's completely different from electric induction cooktops, which are much better. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, a lot of great solutions. We should have a, maybe if you have a favorite, a, a list of, of links for each of those topics, you quickly talked about, we could include a bullet list of, um, well, sort of top, I'll just, top links. Yeah. In fact, well, in fact, everything I'm talking about, I don't like to plug things, but I did finish, did complete a book recently in the last couple of months. So it's called plug it, plug it. <laughs> <laughs> you like to plug things. You have an electric car for like a decade. Come on. Well, no, I don't like good things that other people can should, can adopt and use, but it, yeah, I just have a hard time plugging my own a book. Uh, but uh, anyway, it does to cover all these topics, including electrifying buildings and homes and hydrogen and what technologies are good, what we shouldn't use. Uh, it's all on how to transition the world to 100% clean, renewable energy and storage for everything. Cool. Yeah, we'll, pl- we'll put that in there. Uh, but yeah, keep keep plugging, electrify everything, including Mark. We're gonna electri- <laughs> plug plug it. So I like I like the idea of adopting a, a new technology and show and showing that it works. Then I'm happy to like show the world that. That's... Yeah. Uh, so one other, um, you stop me if there was something else, but uh, one other area that gets a lot of attention has for years is the potential for hydrogen for long term seasonal storage energy storage, uh, primarily grid scale, I think. Um, do you see this as a smart path to go down? I mean, I know we've written about overbuilding wind and solar is, is in many cases, the most cost-effective, smartest approach. It also has a kind of um, political or psychological barrier in that people don't like the idea of building like 50% more than you need much of the year is something that irks, like, sort of irritates some people's minds. Uh, but when you put the overall con- context that it's the cheapest option, the best option, the most efficient option, um, you know, it, it seems logical to me. But you still, you still have cases where storage is, is really um, long-term seasonal storage is, is sort of a, a, a remaining factor. So can you say what you think about green hydrogen's role there? Yeah, well, again, that comes back to whether we use hydrogen for electricity production on the grid. And as I mentioned, it's not the most efficient thing to do. Uh, now, for long-term storage, I mean, there are we do have long-term storage of heat and some cold. Like there's a seasonal heat storage in boreholes, water pits, and aquifers, for example. Have, they're widespread in Northern Europe and Canada. And so the idea there is like in the summer when you have these solar collectors that collect heat and the heat is then um, transferred to the soil underground in a borehole or to a big water pit, a big swimming pool basically covered with insulation and you just heat the water to like 80 degrees Celsius and store it until winter time. Or there are a lot of places where there are aquifers underground where you can store heat on one side of the aquifer and from if you have excess wind or solar, you can produce heat um, or from you know, just direct solar heating. And then you can store that until winter. So there's a lot of that already, seasonal heat storage. Um, but we're talking now electricity storage. And 
Technically, yeah, you could store hydrogen for electricity for long term, whether we need it or not, it's still to be determined. There are, because there are other, there are lots of other types of storage that are available. And when we have our new paradigm, when we transition everything, when we electrify all energy sectors, transportation, buildings, uh, and industry, and we provide all the electricity with clean renewable energy, we actually have fewer peaks in demand. Like right now, for example, in the US, I mean, in the winter, or let's take the summer, summertime, biggest uh, peak in demand is for air conditioning. And like in California, you have air conditioning peaks in the, when it gets really hot, let's say in five in the afternoon. I'll even get to California because they had some blackouts. Now, of course, in the daytime, you can meet that peak with solar. And so the answer in California is to put even more solar. There's been a large growth of solar and that's actually dented that peak, but we need even more. But what about when it becomes nighttime? Well, nighttime uh, then turns out offshore wind in the summertime peaks in July in the late afternoon, early evening. And so if we actually grew offshore wind in California, we can meet the nighttime peak in demand. So some people might say, well, we need seasonal long-term monthly storage. In that case, we actually don't. We just need to grow renewables. And it's, it's mostly a combination of, you know, I think the most storage we'll need is on the order of hours to a week or two. And that might be considered long-term, but, you know, you can build up a lot of batteries in that case. I, I've done modeling where I don't need, you know, months of electricity storage to provide 100% renewable electricity. Uh, so it's, I have not found a reason that we need long-term electricity storage. Not to say, sure, if you have it, it's not going to hurt and it's certainly going to help you. But I think there's so many other ways to balance the grid. And the biggest one is demand response, which we have just haven't even peeled the onion very much. Uh, because, you know, if you give people incentives, like, you know, you wouldn't believe it. Well, in California, where I live, there are three tiers of electricity prices, you know, in the like three to... It's like three to seven p.m. or three to nine p.m. and then from that's the highest rate, and then eleven p.m. to seven a.m. is the very lowest rate. It's like one fifth the cost. And then everything in between is the middle rate. And that gives people incentive to charge their electric car between eleven p.m. and seven a.m. For example, because it's like one fifth the cost of doing it in the afternoon. But you wouldn't believe there are many states in the United States where there's a flat electricity price all day. So there's no incentive for anybody to shift the time of use. So of course you have electricity problems when you're not you're not giving people incentive to move their electricity use to a different time. So this is the most obvious way to to actually match power demand and supply in the grid. So until you've actually just run out of options for short term uh, fixing the grid problems, and there are so many, especially when you electrify things, you're, you're going to have more electric cars. That's that's called a flexible load because you can charge an electric car any time of the day or night. You don't have to you know, attach your wind turbine to the car to run it. And so that's a flexible load. Water heaters in homes are flexible loads. You can you can charge them with heat any time of day or night with electricity if you have a heat pump. And so the more of these flexible loads we have when we electrify everything, uh, the easier it is to shift the time of using electricity. And that's actually the best way to match power demand on the grid. Yeah, yeah so, so sort of putting it one way, the, the biggest, best battery we'll have is... Uh, demand response, smart grid kind of, you know, right. uh, virtual battery kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, especially where, you know, uh, as I mean, we're seeing EV adoption 
in Europe this year is 10% of market share. Um, so we're, we're sort of hitting a, a kind of curve where we're getting to, to a big enough scale where this is going to start. Um, and I guess California is probably, probably fairly similar. I'm not sure what the share is, but, uh, but yeah, so you don't really see much application for, for it there either. So do you, I mean, uh, there, there's just so much. I don't. I guess I could, we could. I just get your overview take on what you, what you think about all of the, R and D programs, government programs, and uh, PR driven stories about green hydrogen. Do you think we're going to end up just creating a lot of uh, wasteful funding spending for it? Do you think it's just sort of a last ditch effort? Do you think it's it does have application for some uses, so it, it's yeah. useful and it's going somewhere. Just maybe not where the biggest proponents think. What's your overall? Well, I think take? well, we definitely need it for long distance heavy transport, and as I mentioned, maybe um, steel production and microgrids, and even microgrids, you could have some long term storage. We're not talking big storage quantities. Um, so the, we definitely need. Um, some research and development of it, especially for the transport part. But I think the, the worry is you get all these tangential applications that are not so useful uh, or even damaging in some cases. And there's an excuse to produce the hydrogen with you know, fossil fuels, especially me uh, methane. And I, I did mention there is one application of doing that, which is taking methane from a, a landfill or a digester where it would be released to the air in any case, and using it in steam reforming to produce hydrogen for use in a fuel cell. So it's not no application, but I think that also gives the natural gas industry an excuse to say, well, I'll just use our natural gas to produce hydrogen, and that's just defeating the purpose. So it's a little nuance. It's not like, because there is there are some applications that are beneficial, but there are also a lot of applications that are damaging. And so we just have to focus and educate people about what's good and what's not and not let the business people decide what's good and what's not. Yeah. So uh, giving you a hypothetical, um, if you were editor and editor in chief or, or editor of the hydrogen section of clean technica, what, what would you say? Like, we're not writing of this. We're not writing about this. We're, we, you know, we're, we're covering hydrogen here and here. I mean, how would you sort of approach that kind of, I guess, just in the way you talked about already that, you know, you, yeah, the application or because I mean, you, like you said, there's this nuance, there's these gray areas where there's funding for a program on on it. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, you know, it could be going down a useful route. It could just be a lot of wasteful spending. It's hard to sort of sometimes well, I, say. Yeah, I think I mean, I, th I think I would I mean, when I look at it, it's pretty clear because it's just hydrogen has to be produced from clean, renewable electricity, mm -hmm. um, except for the one case of you know, waste methane from landfills and digesters, or if you can get it from rice paddies. Um, that's the only way to produce it is the is electrolysis, except for that one application, and and from clean renewable energy. And the application, you know, ninety percent of the application is going to be heavy long distance heavy transport. You know, then there's steel production, and then some microgrid electricity and heat combined electricity, heat and microgrids. And that's, you know, that's where the focus should be. I don't, I think we should wear ourselves out for the grid electricity before we 
go to hydrogen for any grid electricity. And it seems like there's still a heavy focus on it for that sector, which is what's bothersome, I guess. There's, there's a lot of hype around it. hydrogen use in the electricity system, which is... Well, I think that'll kind of collapse on its own because it's so inefficient compared to just using batteries that batteries will always win out. So, I mean, people I guess, might do it, but they're just wasting a lot of money. <laughs> I guess the question on the battery thing. So, I mean, the, the argument that I heard years ago, and I haven't really followed that closely since, but um, was, you know, batteries are great for short-term use, low cost, uh, hydrogen for long-term. As you were saying earlier, you don't really see much application where you need long-term storage, and then you have other options. Pump well, there's no, oil. yeah, right now there's no, um, there's that no hasn't come up. That's all theory. I mean, that's, there, there actually has not been, that, that hasn't actually come to fruition yet. That's just a theoretical claim. So I don't, I'm not, and I feel that it won't all, we'll see that with batteries and everything becoming more efficient with use of more heat pumps. I mean, on the hottest day of the year in my house, when we had blackouts in part of the state, the very hottest day of the year here, I mean, I produced more electricity in my own home than I consumed and sent more back to the grid, keeping my house at a perfect, if the outside temperatures was 106, 107 degrees Fahrenheit, my inside temperature was perfect. It was like 77. I was at the, I just, that was the limit I set it at that I, I can put it in a range. And I still produced more electricity than I consumed. I didn't hardly use any because heat pumps don't use any electricity. If everybody had a heat pump, there would be no problem on the grid. I can tell yeah. you in the, in the summer here. So it's, I'm, I'm saying my point is, is that as we transition, these problems are going to change or this, yeah. the issues are going to change. Uh, and so somebody's guessing we'll need long-term solutions, but if you actually transition everything, we might find, and I'm pretty sure we will find that we don't need long-term uh, storage, you know, maybe except for some app, uh, remote applications. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, using an old metaphor, kind of as the puzzle pieces come together, there's not really a spot for a long term. <laughs> it doesn't fit into the to picture as as much as people think. Uh, or yeah. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Um, I, we had some other topics to maybe quickly run through. One, one interesting thing was there's this chart. Um, Lazard has does its levelized cost of energy charts, and uh, you have green hydrogen there at $127 per megawatt hour, according to their analysis, um, which, which puts it below nuclear, below gas peaking, but still above uh, renewables. And well, I guess we've already talked about that. I think that's consistent with my saying that using like solar plus batteries is going to be, this is for grid, for the use of, for electricity production. Is that what that was? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's come down, but you're, yeah, you're just, your your point is it doesn't really have a role there. Yeah. It's, I'd say it's to be, I mean, if you look at today, it's not, it's not efficient. There could be some breakthroughs that make it cheaper. So, to, um, but it's, yeah, as of now, it's like not a, it would not be the best. It's much better to use it for long distance heavy transport. That's, I guess, my point. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm sorry to, I'm sort of being redundant there, but you know, I sort of want to, get get it from every angle to sort of you know have have your word on it uh so i guess a final topic you wrote a great article with uh claudio Cla claudia kempfert and you said she was the lead author which we we highlighted um but uh you did a piece together called mediocrity is the enemy of the solution uh mm -hmm. so maybe as a, a few as a closing 
um, topic. Do you want to summarize that again a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, we focused our group at Stanford for I mean, our first energy plan was in 2009. So over 11 years ago now. And the idea was to, we want to transition the world to clean, renewable energy and storage and clean, renewable energy is well-defined in the sense that it's electricity and heat from well, wind onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, geothermal, mostly existing hydroelectric power and tidal, tiny amounts of tidal wave, but things that you no combustion because we don't, we want to eliminate air pollution and, and we don't use biofuels because you, you burn biofuels and so you create air pollution. Um, we don't include carbon capture or direct air capture uh, because first of all, the, most carbon captures run, you need energy that's run by, uh, like there was a, a plant in Texas that was built and they since have closed it down because it was so inefficient but they actually, to, it was a coal plant where they added carbon capture equipment, but the energy required was so great, they actually built a natural gas plant just to run the carbon capture equipment for the coal plant. And when you do that, they didn't capture any of the emissions from the natural gas plant. Then you had to mine the natural gas and they didn't capture those emissions and transport it and there were leaks of methane, et cetera. And they didn't capture any of the coal upstream coal production, the emissions from mining the coal and the equipment itself was not very efficient and was down a lot. And when all was said and done, only about 10% of the total carbon emitted by the gas in the coal plant was captured over a 20-year time frame, maybe 20% over a 100-year time frame. And then what did they do with the CO2 that was captured? Well, it was, sent, it was piped to an oil field where it was then blended with oil to make it less dense. And so it can come up with come up to the surface faster to enhance oil recovery. And half the carbon then went back to the air through that process. And the other half, who knows, there's no evidence that's actually stayed in the ground. So we don't know. I mean, it's a minimal amount of carbon that was actually captured, if any. But it increased the air pollution because carbon capture equipment doesn't reduce air pollution from a coal plant and you need more energy and the gas plant just increased air pollution. So you increased air pollution, you increased mining because you have the natural gas mining and you hardly reduce any carbon. And it would cost a billion dollars for this one coal plant. That was the cost, a billion. And so you basically increase the cost of electricity for consumers by a third to half. So it's just a boondoggle and, it, and they realize this and they shut the plant. They just mothballed it after four years. Uh, so my point is, is that this is not a good solution. And there's actually, it turns out, so I wrote a paper looking at carbon capture and also direct air capture. And there's actually no case ever where it's better to use energy to run a capture equipment just to reduce CO2, where you can see use that same energy, let's say it's renewable energy, to shut a coal plant or a gas plant, eliminate CO2 and air pollution and the mining. So you get much better benefit in terms of health and climate of using that energy for something else. And so the point of the article was that there are all these proposed solutions, direct air capture, carbon capture, uh, biofuels, but also nuclear power that just do not help solve the problem. For nuclear, it takes between 10 and 19 years between planning and operation of a new nuclear plant today and the cost, according to Lazard, is five times that 
of utility scale photovoltaics. So you get something, so take, say it's 15 years, 15 years from now is 2036. We need to solve 80% of the problem in the next nine years. How can a single nuclear reactor help that at all? It can't. And so you're basically pushing off solutions. You're just emitting fossil fuels while you're waiting around for this nuclear. And even when it, so you have 100% fossil fuel emissions in the next 15 years while you're waiting. And then after that, because it costs five times more, you only get 20, you only reduce relative to using wind today, 20% of the emissions reduction after 15 years compared to using wind. And so that's it's assume, And that's assuming that wind and solar don't get <laughs> much you, cheaper in that time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 100% emissions for 15 years and then 80% emissions after that. It just, it doesn't help at all. It cannot it makes, possibly help at all in this problem. It makes less, less than zero cents. Yeah. And uh, I, I think a, top, a fun topic for another conversation, in my opinion, would be, um, you know, we sort of hit a cost crossover point with solar and wind becoming the cheapest options most of the time for new electricity generation capacity. But there's, we're also sort of, um, we're hitting a crossover point. You know, different regions are all different, but where wind and solar beat existing um, power plants, uh, power plants that might've been running for 10, 20 years, uh, where new wind and solar can provide cheaper electricity than existing, uh, even though those costs, many of those costs already sunk. So that would be a fun topic to, uh, to get your information, you know, especially because you've explored so many regions in such detail, it'd be fascinating to sort of kind of get a geographical picture of, of how that's happening and how that's evolving. But um, mm. yeah, th well, thank you today for your expertise on green hydrogen uh, and hydrogen in general. It, it will inform us, uh, I guarantee you, on our editorial process at Clean Technica. So really appreciate the guidance. Um, I think we, we uh, yeah, we'll reach out about it. <laughs> we, we could use you as a kind of uh, guiding director of sorts if if uh, if that works but uh and also just thank you for for i mean doing so much work publicly it would be easy for you to sit in your university and in your home and just enjoy a nice comfortable life but you you work tirelessly it seems to help inform people on solutions and non-solutions uh to the climate challenge so huge humongous thank you i cannot give you enough thanks for that um and i'm sure millions of people as well would like to pass that thanks along. So appreciate it. Any Thank final you. words? No, no, I really appreciate it, Zach. Thanks for having me on again. And I, yeah, anything I can do to help and you know provide information about you know the best ways forward, I'd love to help. You are smart. <laughs> you know stuff and you're smart. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Enjoy uh, your holidays. Uh, thank you for doing this the day after Christmas. Uh, don't know uh, if, you, if you're very busy, but I appreciate it. Thank All you. right. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.
Walk, 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 walk,